Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Kendall Deneen. And today I'm joined by Dr. Catherine Oliverius to discuss her recent book, Necropolis, Disease, Power, and Capitalism in the Cotton Kingdom. Necropolis is a fascinating and I would say a timely book about a series of yellow fever outbreaks that affected New Orleans in the 1800s. And I say timely because the book reveals and untangles the capitalist and white supremacist interests that can dictate how those in power frame and respond to disease, which feels very relevant in our time, in my opinion. <laughs> um, Catherine is an historian and an assistant professor at Stanford University. Thank you so much for joining us today, Catherine. It is my absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I always like to have guests start out by just sort of <clears throat> introducing themselves. And then if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to the project of this book, that would be great. Sure. So I'm um, not from the South. And in fact, I, you know, didn't live in the, I hadn't lived in the United States for some time before um, starting to write this book. Um, I, this was my first book. So this is what we call in the biz, your dissertation book on um, the book that came out of your PhD. So when I started this project, um, when I was a graduate student at Oxford, um, I actually went into it intending to do something entirely different. Um, I wanted to sort of explore how the slave experience change in Louisiana as it transferred from a French and Spanish colony to an American colony following the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. But um, when I actually got into the archives, um, I was at my first research trip. I was in Louisiana for something like, you know, six weeks or a month or, you know, a month or six weeks or something. And I was in the archives in Tulane and I was just impressed constantly by how much, um, you know, people in their diaries and in their letters um, to spouses and to business partners and among family, you know, they certainly talked about the sort of growth of the cotton kingdom. They talked about credit markets. They talked about the slave experience to a certain degree. Um, they talked about slavery, especially buying and selling people. Um, but what they talked most about um, was disease and one disease in particular that was yellow fever, um, a disease that actually I'm kind of ashamed to say that I didn't really know all that much about um, beyond that it existed and that it was still very dangerous. I knew that it was a virus that impacted people mostly in West Africa, but that was really actually kind of the you know long and short of what I knew. Um, so when I got back to the UK and I was doing reading into, you know, what is, you know, what is it about this disease? Um, you know, I discovered there were many, many excellent books written about yellow fever in New Orleans from a sort of environmental perspective. Um, and I came to learn that this disease um, was 
by far um, the most terrifying aspect of living, not just in New Orleans, but in the Deep South during the 19th century. Um, this disease, um, this yellow fever, um, mosquito-borne virus, it attacked the Deep South, um, especially New Orleans, at epidemic levels every second or third summer. Um, when it attacked, it could kill up to 8% of the population, sometimes 10% of the population um, when it attacked. Um, and so this, you know, utterly sort of, it has caused utter terror within people. And I came to think of it more as not such, not so much sort of background noise to these sort of more resonant stories of the Cotton Kingdom and its growth, but really a sort of dark matter that this played an essential role in impacting the structure of society, the way that markets worked, um, and the way that people identified and related to one another. And so I thought, hmm, maybe there's something sort of more there there. Um, and it turns out there was. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so can you kind of set the scene for us in terms of New Orleans, you know, when this is happening, sort of the time period that, that your book is examining, who's living in New Orleans at this time, what life is like? Um, you explained when yellow fever is striking right every, I think you said third summer or so, right? Um, and then also, if you could just tell us briefly why you refer to the city as the Cotton Kingdom. So New Orleans is the capital of the sort of growing cotton kingdom. It's what we call the sort of hub of this region. And so the cotton kingdom is this region that is sort of taking off and developing over the course of the first decades of the 19th century. So the sort of to briefly set the scene here, um, New Orleans, of course, was founded in 1718 by the French, and it had been an outpost that was of great importance um, to the various colonial powers that held it, mostly because of its position as sort of this port city, this depot very low down on the Mississippi River. So it was the place through which all of the goods of the North American interior had to flow if they're going to get to Europe or to the Greater Caribbean or to South America. So... Um, Come the 1790s, um, actually, when New Orleans was controlled by the Spanish government, um, it's part of the Spanish Empire, um, two things happened, or three things happened, um, which greatly accelerated New Orleans' importance as a port city, um, not just to the Spanish, but potentially to all um, imperial powers. So in 1791, um, we see um, the first rumblings, or the you know, first major rumblings of um sort of disquiet and revolution on the island of Saint-Domingue, the colony of Saint-Domingue, um, which is a French colony. This is a massive um, slave uprising that lasts until 1804. Um, and this utterly destabilizes the markets and flows of commodities around the greater Caribbean. Um, this is, you know, so Saint-Domingue, very briefly, was the world's largest sugar colony um, in 1791. And then um, the enslaved population um, exploded in revolts then and um, eventually, um, in 1804, um, Haiti became the first Black Republic in the world. So this sets up a chain of reactions in which um, various colonies are seeking to sort of fill the market gap left by Haiti. And Louisiana is kind of framed to fit this bill, actually, because of two very lucrative commodities that are also taking off along the Gulf Coast, and that's sugar and cotton. So these are two immensely lucrative crops um, that, for a variety of reasons, are having this, this kind of... Um, revolution and heyday um, across the Gulf South. So sugar, it requires a lot of money to get into this business and a lot of enslaved labor, um, working very fast and, you know, at a coordinated pace. Um, but it can be immensely, immensely lucrative for white enslavers um, in the, um, along the lower Mississippi. And cotton, uh, because of the cotton gin, um, co the productivity of cotton has gone up exponentially. And we see cotton, you know, which requires actually a lot less sort of upfront capital, um, to, if you want to get into this game, um, this is spreading across Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and parts of East Texas as well. And so 
in response to these sort of commodity revolutions, you see people flowing into the deep south. Um, we call you know historians called this process Alabama fever or Mississippi fever. Um, so by the 1810s and 1820s, um, this is when Louisiana's become a state, in fact, too. Um, you see, you know, there are tens and tens of thousands of people coming into Louisiana and New Orleans each year seeking to get in to these very lucrative markets. And everyone, and I should say this, you know, every single person in this who is a part of this sort of mass migration, mostly from the sort of northern states or the eastern states, but also um, increasingly from Europe, so Scotland um, and Ireland and the German states. So these people, um, they know that there is an increased risk of death at New Orleans. They know about yellow fever sort of at least, you know, in the abstract. But everyone here thinks that they're going to be kind of like, you know, this is the place that ambitious young men white men, I should say, of their day went. Um, this is the Silicon Valley of its day. Everyone thinks they're going to be Mark Zuckerberg. Of course, you know, they're not. Um, and good riddance. Um, thank you. But everyone thinks this. Um, and so they come here. They, um, you know, some of them, they bring capital with them, hoping to invest in a plantation or invest in a mercantile shop. And crucially, they also bring many enslaved people with them. And they also, you know, this movement is also propelling the growth of the domestic slave trade, of which New Orleans becomes the sort of chief, um, the chief marketplace for enslaved people um, in this, in, in the ever-expanding United States. So we see this, this sort of the population is rapidly growing, not just of the Deep South, but especially of New Orleans, which is growing more and more crowded, actually more filthy to um, as it grows larger. Um, and we're seeing, you know, as as it grows in population um, and in sort of physical size, we also see the frequency and ferocity of yellow fever epidemics increase as well. So could you talk a little bit about how yellow fever is spread? Because I knew that the mosquito was a vector, but I didn't know if that was sort of the only way that it was spread. Um, and also if you could talk a little bit about just what this disease does to the body and how deadly it was. Yeah, it's not pleasant. Um, so basically, okay, so yellow fever is a hemorrhagic fever. It's, kind of, it's in the same family as, you know, diseases that you might know, Zika or dengue, for example. Um, and it's spread by mosquitoes. The mosquito is the vector. Um, they didn't know this at the time, in fact. Um, I'll come back to this in a minute. But so we know today that yellow fever is spread by mosquitoes. So essentially, um, the way that it transmits is like this. So, you know, in if you're in New Orleans, for example, in, let's say, 1833, um, the year of a very serious epidemic, a ship um, with an infected mosquito will arrive in on the levee in New Orleans. This mosquito, um, which is infected with yellow fever, probably because um, it's come from the Caribbean, where there is endemic yellow fever, um, or else it's a hatchling that is, um, the, you know, that has been biting people on the on board the ship. Somebody maybe infected was there, but they disembark the ship. They bite somebody. Um, this person therefore becomes infected. Another mosquito will bite this person and. Well, then, you know, there's sort of a chain reaction here where they will fly a little bit of a distance and they'll bite another person. And that's how this, this virus spreads. Now, at the time, they did not recognize this. Um, and in fact, yellow fever sort of confounded many medical experts at the time because many, they sort of debated the, they debated the, you know, quote unquote, contagiousness of yellow fever. Um, so it was not classically contagious in the way that other, other diseases were, in that it was not spread you know, it, it couldn't be traced to be spread directly from human to human contact, like smallpox, for example, or syphilis also, too. Um, these are sort of diseases that were widely recognized to be contagious. Yellow fever didn't quite meet this bill, and many people called it 
you know, non-contagious um, because it didn't really meet these disease transmission patterns. So they actually didn't know a great deal about this disease. They did know, um, what they did know was sort of this in the broad outline. So they knew that um, yellow fever did not treat all people equally, um, that it seemed to affect certain groups of people more than others, um, especially so-called strangers. Um, these are generally people with no previous exposure to tropical disease um, from Northern Europe um, or else from the Northern states. Um, these are so-called strangers. Um, and you were alleged to be especially vulnerable to yellow fever if you were an alcoholic. Um, this was, and this is true for basically all diseases. Very much contemporary medicine at the time held that if you were an alcoholic, you were vulnerable to an entire sort of cast of diseases. And not only that, that you, through your behavior and your morality, brought the disease on yourself. So this is how always how sort of alcohol, poverty, and disease become linked. Um, they also believed, and we'll talk more about this, that all Black people possessed a sort of natural um, immunity or extreme resistance to yellow fever. Now, this um, there's no evidence for this, um, but this was widely held, not just in the Deep South, but across the Atlantic world at the time, that Black people did not die at anywhere near the same rates as did white people. And the third thing they did recognize was that yellow fever um, could not reinfect a person. So if you survived yellow fever and your chances were not good at this time in the 19th century, if you became sick with yellow fever, one of two equally likely things would happen to you. Either you would become immune for life um, from your infection, or you would die. So very high death rate from this disease that's much, much, much higher, deadlier than COVID, um, for example. And um, so they did recognize that you could become so-called acclimated, that is immune for life. But um, many people, of course, half of all people who fell sick with this would die a very miserable death. So um, victims would experience this sort of sudden onset of chills and nausea. Um, many people experienced lower back pains that were these like crushing lower back pains. Um, within a few days, generally, you would become, you know, very delirious with fever. Um, you, your organs would eventually shut down. Um, then you would lapse into a coma and die. And famously, at the end of your illness, you would regurgitate very thick black blood that looked a lot like coffee grounds. Um, so hence the nickname for yellow fever, black vomit. Um, so that was the sort of telltale symptom. And it was an incredibly, incredibly pain, painful way to die. Um, I have examples of, you know, rabbis and priests, very, very pious, um, very, very um, sort of taciturn men otherwise, they would be screaming profanities at the end of their illness. Um, they were just in so much pain and misery um, at the very end. Um, so can you tell us then what was New Orleans response to yellow fever, these recurring, you know, um, uh, waves of disease hitting the city? And was this response similar to other cities that were also stricken or different? So actually, this was one of the sort of guiding questions. One of the things that really puzzled me um, throughout the research and writing of this book. So my question always was, why did a city with triple the national mortality average, which um, New Orleans had during most of the 19th century, in fact, um, this is a very deadly place to go. Why did its sort of, why did the people who were, you know, would have been responsible for public health, so that is health officers and or city councilors or state officials, why did they not just invest so much less money into public health and to fixing yellow fever than other cities, why do they seem to like, just like not care at all? So if you were to like, you know, I, I mean this, I mean this quite literally, 
If you go and look at the records of the city council um, from, you know, let's say October of 1833, again, this is a year of a very bad yellow fever epidemic. And in fact, there's a joint cholera epidemic going on as well at that time. So, you know, there's, it's chaos within the city. If the city council met at all, and very often it wouldn't meet during epidemics because city councilors would run off to their country plantations where they would quote unquote truant um, during epidemics. If there was a meeting at all, if they were sitting, you would not know that a yellow fever epidemic was going on at all. They just would not talk about it. They would talk about, you know, the oyster shells that they needed to pave a new road, or they would be talking about internal squabbles. Um, they would, you know, it just, you know, it was incredibly petty stuff. So this is sort of confounding. So why don't they care? Like, you know, doesn't this seem like the sort of, doesn't seem like this should have been the primary political issue? Um, so my answer to this is that um, politicians didn't care because actually um, it benefited them to not care um, for a, a variety of reasons. So during the early decades of the 19th century, um, you see many American cities and also actually cities in the greater Caribbean to a lesser extent. So cities like Havana and Kingston um, and also in, in South America and Central America, you see various cities taking sort of increasing steps to... Um, exert their influence, the sort of cities or municipal, the municipalities influence over the people. And they do this a lot in public health. So for example, New York or Norfolk or even Charleston, um, they'll increasingly um, implement tools to curb disease. So they'll institute quarantines. That's a big one. Um, in fact, multiple quarantines, sometimes for different diseases. Um, there are many quarantine stations in New York Harbor or in Philadelphia Harbor, for example. Um, many cities will build hospitals or orphanages um, or institutions that will care for the sick and the widowed and orphaned um, that are inevitably left after epidemics. Um, you'll see sort of soup kitchens and other charitable um, sort of you know charitable institutions that are designed to basically help people move on with their lives after these devastating epidemics. And you see, I mean, this almost none of this in New Orleans. Um, Quarantines are implemented only four times, very briefly during the antebellum period. They always buckle under pressure from the business community who say that they don't want them because they're impeding commerce. Um, New Orleans invested significantly less. And I mean, like factor, like I think two cents per person during the 1850s compared with like 69 cents per person in Boston during the 1850s in public health. We're talking like almost no money at all. And this is because um, politicians, I think essentially, realized um, that, you know, you know, they sort of looking the situation in the face um, and they rightly said, you know, there's nothing, we can't cure yellow fever. You know, nobody could at the time, but they sort of had this fatalistic attitude in which they said, not only can we not cure yellow fever, there's nothing we can do to stop it. So the fact that quarantine seemed to work in New York or in Genoa or in Paris, no, 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 no. That, that means nothing here in New Orleans. We're special. We're different. And any money, any tax money, spent on trying to stop disease was therefore wasted. And so the entire structure of government became essentially sort of operate around this philosophy that, you know, you newcomer, um, nobody asked you to come here. You're coming here by your own volition. Um, you have to face disease like everybody else. You have to get acclimated individually. That is your responsibility. We have no role in helping you through this process. Our job as politicians is to help you make money once you survive through cotton and sugar and slavery. 
Um, but in the meantime, we don't care about you. Um, this is It is not the business of the city government or even the state government to help people survive. It's their job to help them make money once they are proven to be acclimated. That is, survive, that is a survivor of yellow fever. And that very much, you know, people... This very much, of course, impacts the sort of relationship between state and citizen. Um, and citizens, you know, and newcomers and residents remarked routinely in the fact that their government basically took no steps to sanitize the city, to, you know, really fix disease. And, you know, the government really, you know, they didn't really care all that much um, that, you know, they were seen to be sort of shirking their responsibilities by certain subsets of the population because it didn't affect them electorally um, because acclimated men voted unacclimated men did not. Um, so the unacclimated, the, the, seas of, you know, the sea of people who are kind of waiting in this purgatory, awaiting their brush with this infection, they don't really vote. Um, they're not citizens yet. Um, they're not naturalized. And so they're an easy block to ignore. So you describe, and I think you know, you're, you're leading us here beautifully, you describe New Orleans in the 19th century, not just as a capitalist society, but as an immunocapitalist one. And this is obviously like one of the major sort of interventions of your book and is so fascinating. So um, if you could explain uh, for us what, what immunocapitalism is. Sure. So, you know, capitalism is a system of class rule and capitalists, um, so powerful people or people be, who become powerful through the system, they use whatever sort of materials are at their disposal to increase their power and their profits. So that can be machinery or that can be certain laws or, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, capitalists use what's at their disposal to increase their power. And the same can be true of disease too. So here, elites weaponized disease and the immunity that half of all lucky people would, um, you know, earn through surviving. They weaponized these things essentially to discipline the population. So they used disease. Um, you know, first of all, they sort of many elites actually in the first place welcomed the ravages that yellow fever um, caused in New Orleans because, in their mind, it literally stopped competition. Um, it stopped a certain number of people from, you know, surviving long enough to enter the, you know, sort of capitalist ruling classes and therefore compete with them. And they were very happy with that. Um, but also it kept the sort of working classes and by working classes, I mean, both enslaved and black, but also free um, and white and generally sort of foreign born. It kept these people vulnerable, um, you know, massively vulnerable. Um, and it kept them in this position in which, you um, you know, they knew fundamentally that they had very few options if they wanted to make it in New Orleans. They, that, you know, many people, and you see this across the board, many people throughout the 19th century actively sought out getting yellow fever, knowing that they were literally gambling their life um, in the process. They, it was so important to their position in New Orleans um, and their, you know, future prospects that I've seen examples of people literally injecting black blood into their veins or rolling around in their dead friend's beds, hoping to get sick. Again, they don't know that the mosquito vector, um, they don't know about the mosquito vector, but they, they are actively seeking out disease and, you know, they've got a 50% chance of dying from this illness. And that's how, but that's how important, you know, developing immunity to this disease, to this disease is um, to one's position in New Orleans. And so, you know, elites basically, they use the sort of vulnerability um, that disease engenders um, to create the system in which they grow more powerful through slavery, through the labor of others, um, um, while people otherwise languish, um, either they die or else um, they're you know, sort of impeded by disease um, in entering the capitalist classes. So could you talk to us a little bit about how surviving yellow fever becomes like sort of central to 
like one's masculinity, one's sort of like patriotism and national identity, et cetera. Sure. So, um, okay. So the way that the society is structured, so the way that if you think about New Orleans, probably the structure that you're most familiar with um, is the very intense um, and violent racial structure in which um, the city is sort of subdivided between three major groups. That is free white people um, who are on the top of the society, politically, socially, economically, um, then also free black people. Um, there's a substantially, lar- there's a pretty large population of free black people um, in New Orleans and then enslaved people. So that is certainly true that this is how a daily life is structured, this racial order. But commingling with this racial hierarchy, you have another hierarchy that develops as well. So you have so-called acclimated citizens on top. These are yellow fever survivors, um, people who have lived from um, sort of through yellow fever and have convinced others of their immune status. Um, then underneath that, you have so-called unacclimated strangers. These are people with whom um, who have not yet faced yellow fever and are sort of languishing in this professional and social and economic purgatory. And then at the bottom of the hierarchy, you have a sort of a combination of groups. So you have the dead. Um, these are people who literally in the time were considered to be not of sufficient morality to have survived in the first place. But then you also have enslaved people and some free black people um, in this last category. And these are people for whom their immunity status meant um, would not you know, confer anything beneficial on them socially or economically. Of course, it could save their life, um, but their immunity status, um, the value of that, the monetary value of that and social value of that devolved to others, mostly their white enslavers. So you have this sort of narrative that develops over time in New Orleans that surviving yellow fever, it's not just this kind of biological Rubicon that everyone has to pass. Um, It became endowed with a kind of morality um, and this was fact, you know, sort of, so your brush with yellow fever became a story that you would tell at dinner parties or that you would tell the business partners. So you can basically trying to prove that you were made of the right stuff, that you were credit worthy, that you um, had paid your biological dues and that you would come out of this process more manly, str- you know, stronger and that you would sort of, you know, literally made yourself worthy um, of living in this very, very um, fatal and environmentally fraught landscape. So you see, you know, these stories of, you know, and this happens sort of over time where, you know, people will tell their stories of their acclamation. And it's always about how brave they were um, and how, you know, they had, you know, they fell sick and, you know, they they knew that they were sick, um, but they had literally willed themselves to survive. Uh, it was all a matter of willpower and choice. Um, and so in this telling, of course, these manly white, crucially white, you know, brave men had faced this disease and because of their innate self-worth, you know, apparently, um, they had willed themselves to survive. And so their survival is taken as the sign of sort of greatness. Um, women, of course, don't have the, you know, it's not sort of associated with manliness to the same degree, though, um, as we'll maybe talk about, um, acclimation was very important for white women too, um, in terms of who you married um, and your social standing. Um, it only, you know, if you were acclimated, um, you were able to marry up and, you know, there's, um, and socialize with sort of richer and more powerful groups. Um, but you also see, you know, the sort of converse of this narrative develop too, which is that, so if it takes, 
you know, masculine bravery to survive yellow fever. Um, and some people even said that, you know, it took as much bravery to defeat yellow fever as it did for continental soldiers to defeat the British at Yorktown. You know, we're, we're talking like orders of magnitude of bravery, apparently. It's kind of ridiculous. Um, but, you know, for, so if it takes all this bravery um, and, you know, willpower um, and grit to survive yellow fever, the converse of that, of course, is that if you died from yellow fever, um, you were somehow you know, not worth it. Um, you were, you had invited the disease yourself. Um, you had willed yourself to die. Um, and, you know, that you in, in death, um, sort of, per, you know, not sort of perversely, very perversely, you had um, caused this disease yourself because you were lowly, you were sexually deviant, um, you were effeminate, um, you were definitely a drunk. That was, you know, the number one association with, you know, sort of poor worth. Um, in this place. Um, so they sort of craft this narrative that it takes a certain kind of character to defeat this disease um, and that a certain kind of character dies from it. And of course, you know, this is all very deeply convenient um, because, you know, look, if you, if you think, I mean, you know, it's all, it's, it's all sort of ridiculous. Like people, you know, they, they don't take into, you know, into account any kind of luck or anything else um, in this, in their estimations. It's always, you know, after the fact, this, sort of declaration of how, you know, what a climatic champion you are, how wonderful you are. And of course, when like a rich man's wife died from yellow fever, he wasn't blaming her death on, you know, adultery or sexual deviance or being a drunk. It was God's will in that circumstance. Um, and so you see this also, it's, this is very class-based. Rich men, when they survived, they were the true heroes. And when they died, it was God's will. Um, you know, this was, it was, it was always meant to be um, but when the poor died, it was always due to their, you know, quote unquote, despicable life choices. Can you talk a little bit about why it was so important for particularly the enslaving class to spread this notion that black people were somehow naturally immune um, to yellow fever? Because obviously they had firsthand experience that this was not the case. Right. Um, so, yeah. Can you can you talk about why they were so sort of dedicated to to um, promulgating this this narrative? So if you ever want to bang your head against a wall a whole lot um, when you're doing historical research, come and study this very vexing aspect of pro-slavery thought and yellow fever, um, the reality of yellow fever. So um, so during the 19th century, and even before this, um, this idea did not start in New Orleans. This idea started you know, hundreds of years before in the Atlantic world, really um, during sort of it, it probably originated with doctors who had been, um, who were installed with various naval and um, military campaigns um, in the greater Caribbean. Um, so in Cartagena or else um, in Barbados. So this idea was that all black people, um, no matter where they were born, um, had a unique ability to resist yellow fever. Um, either black people were entirely and perfectly immune, as the saying went, perfectly immune, um, or else they were able to resist yellow fever to an extreme extent, so that to the point that if they fell sick with yellow fever, they would seldom die from it. And this idea became entrenched across the Atlantic world. Um, it was, you know, it was famously debunked out actually in Philadelphia during a very bad yellow fever epidemic in 1793. Um, any good faith observer at the time would have recognized that many free black people, in fact, who had volunteered to care for the city's sick, um, died from this disease. They died at the same rate as did white people. But despite this reality that black people could and did die um, from yellow fever, 
they had this sort of countervailing myth that also that, that, that sort of takes off that, you know, black people could not die. So what's the rub? Like, why do you know, we have this reality on the one hand and all enslavers recognize this, by the way, too. So if you, you know, read their diaries or their plantation ledgers in any May or June or July of any year, every single one of them is nervous about what's going to happen to their enslaved property. These are people who embody capital to them. They're nervous about what's going to happen to them. And you know how this is going to impact their bottom line, um, and that's how they see it as an economic problem, not as a you know personal tragedy of any kind. And you see this, so you have this on the one hand, enslavers are saying this, um, this you know they're saying that black people are naturally immune to yellow fever, but on the other hand, they're also very nervous about it. So you know this has been you know this is this is one of those questions that literally kept me up at night. Like how can they say one thing and do another? So um, I think because I think that this sort of myth persisted because it was what journalists call sort of too good to check, um, that it was very fun. It was fundamentally very useful to white enslavers because with this idea that black people were naturally immune to yellow fever, it justified the expansion and entrenchment of black slavery over an ever greater area. And, you know, it literally, you know, literally you see people, you see pro-slavery um, theorists like Samuel Cartwright or Josiah Knott, but also just sort of average Joe planters who are saying essentially that black slavery is natural, even actually humanitarian, because it protected um, white people from spaces and labor that would kill them. And so this, therefore, sort of provided this weird epidemiological justification for the growth of slavery that was happening anyways. Um, but this kind of provided a, this kind of scientific gloss to it, uh, which they found immensely useful at the time. Um, I wonder if we could talk about doctors sort of in particular. Um, I thought Dr. Christian Miltenberger was a really interesting figure if you wanted to talk about him, but um, just generally, like why were doctors sort of willing to, to risk becoming ill and dying of this horrible disease, right? in order to practice in New Orleans. Absolutely. So I should say, you know, sort of two things off the get-go. So one is that the vast majority of doctors who worked in New Orleans at this time performed their duties with integrity. Like they, you know, they really, this is, this predates the Hippocratic Oath, but people, many doctors really thought that, you know, they were animated by the principle that they wanted to save lives and, you know, do the most good they could for the most the, the large number of people. And that included not just white people, but also black people too. Um, so we have that on the one hand. And the, on the other hand, too, remember, um, you know, doctors went through at this time, you know, we're seeing at this time sort of the birth of medical schools. Um, and medical schools are teaching a variety of things. Most medical schools are actually based in the North. Um, race science um, is a leading principle that is taught in these schools. Um, and this is before germ theory. Um, doctors don't know all that much necessarily about disease. I and mean, even if you are a sort of quote unquote yellow fever expert, meaning that you've seen a lot of yellow fever in the course of your practice, um, you still don't really know much about how the disease is spread or else how to cure it. And there are various schools of thought as to how best to approach yellow fever from a medical perspective. So you know, French doctors, quote unquote, these are generally people who trained in Paris or in France. They um, advocated for basically kind of like passive remedies at this time. Bas you know, basically actually kind of bed rest, 
palliative care, keeping patients cool and dry. Um, actually, probably they were a little bit more successful um, than the American doctors at the time who employed heroic interventions. And by heroic interventions, I mean um, some things that you know make me so glad to have been you know born in the 20th century and not then. So you see patients, you see, you see doctors um, blistering with a hot iron the you know, palms of people's hands and blistering their soles of their feet. Um, you see them dumping them into wine water baths and then rubbing their skin down with pepper. Um, you see also very famously them dosing patients with mercury. Um, this was a sort of cure-all in the 19th century. Mercury is highly toxic. Um, and if you over, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's highly toxic. And if you gave somebody too much mercury, um, it would cause their teeth to fall out. Um, your breath becomes fetid, your hair falls out. You can go blind and it actually can also kill you. So, you know, this is the, sometimes the remedy for yellow fever we're seeing is, you know, as bad as the cure. But sort of the general principle of life in New Orleans was that actually the earlier you call the doctor when you got sick, um, the greater your chances for survival were. So doctoring was a hugely um, popular and lucrative profession in New Orleans. Um, you see the number of doctors increase faster here in New Orleans than anywhere else in the United States people who claim to have various degrees of expertise in dealing with tropical fevers. And many of these doctors, um, they, and they come here because, you know, for the same reasons that, you know, anybody going into sort of growing markets do, because they can make a lot of money here. Um, that is if they can survive. Um, so many doctors, um, and many, many doctors, you know, during epidemics, um, they, this was the busiest time of their year. Um, they would go from house to house to house, um, you know, meeting with new patients, literally from, you know, sunup to sundown, sometimes late into the night. Um, and they would go about, you know, basically directing the treatment of, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of, of people each epidemic. And some doctors died during the course of their duties because they're in constant contact, of course, with sick and dying people. Um, but, you know, if you were immune or if you were acclimated, um, and many doctors, of course, were um, over time, um, you could stand to make a lot of money um, during epidemics as the most, the busiest and most lucrative time of the year, especially because doctors could charge what locals called yellow fever rates, um, during epidemics. That's triple what they could, um, they could, you know, sort of charge the rest of the year. And people, of course, like, you know, when you're dying and sick and you're scared, you're going to spend just about any money you possibly have in, you know, pursuit of health. Um, so you see people spending all of their life savings, um, you see people also literally saving money um, when they arrive in New Orleans for to pay for their eventual sort of medical bills. And, you know, these these bills can run up to hundreds of dollars um, for a sick season um, that and that's, you know, this is a lot of money considering that, you know, skilled white men in New Orleans would make maybe a dollar a day. Um, so hundreds of dollars is a huge amount of money. For the time, and then of course these doctors, um, that you know they they would use this money that they had amassed during epidemics, and they would invest it in the true engines of wealth production in the deep south. So they would purchase plantations, they would purchase enslaved people, and their hope was essentially to use medicine to elevate themselves eventually into the planter and enslaving class, and therefore also into the realms of political power. So you see a lot of doctors who, you know get rich quickly, but then also become city councilors or all state senators um, or all, you know, U.S. senators eventually, too. Um, there's a, a large number of doctors who do this. And so Christian Miltenberger, um, who you mentioned, he's sort of typical, in fact, 
Um, he's typical and he's atypical in various ways. But Milton Berger was a refugee, a white man. Um, he was a refugee from the Haitian Revolution. Um, and he arrived in New Orleans in 1809. And um, he basically arrived penniless, um, or essentially penniless. Um, he had no money. Um, he had lost the bulk of his fortune, both in Saint-Domingue and then later in Cuba. And when he arrived in New Orleans, he comes, he has no money. Um, he did smuggle in some enslaved people illegally. He then sold these enslaved people so that he could have money, um, capital that he could invest in founding a medical practice. And then, you know, following 1809, for many, many years, um, he became one of the sort of the, the most sought after physicians, um, you know, he's a doctor. He's, he's one of the most sought after physicians in New Orleans because he's known to be a yellow fever expert. And he is fairly typical of planters, of, of excuse me, of doctors at this time because he eventually amassed such a fortune, um, mostly through his yellow fever practice, that he was able to purchase not just one, but multiple plantations and then bestow each of his sons um, with a saddle fortune in their own right. And so his sons, um, by the 1860s, in fact, his three sons, they um, operated the, you know, they basically controlled, they had the controlling portion of the sugar industry um, in New Orleans, the sugar export industry. And they had these offices right next to each other. And so you see the sort of wealth trickled down through the ages, um, through generations, but also you see, you know, just how lucrative um, yellow fever and mass death and medicine can be for a select few who are willing to work in this sort of high risk, high risk zone that is New Orleans. Yeah, it was sort of, it was like mind blowing to me, actually, that you could accumulate so much capital, just doctoring during this time period. Um, yeah, medical ethics don't exist. then, And, you know, it's, it's, and again, some doctors, you know, some doctors literally, you know, died in the pursuit of trying to help people get better. I shouldn't say that it's every single doctor, but it's a lot of doctors um, who, who actively say, you know, this is, Health and death is the third industry in New Orleans. That is after slavery and, you know, commodities like cotton and sugar. So let's get in on this business. Um, so I, I thought it was also really fascinating. It wasn't just, you know, white doctors, right, that people were going to for help. Um, if we could talk about, you know, uh, Marie Laveau makes a, an appearance in the book, um, helping people who are infected. But also there are all of these enslaved Black women whose a lot of them, their names were never even recorded, but who... Um, were so important for for caring for folks and getting them through this disease. So if we could talk a little bit about, um, yeah, the black folks who were involved in in providing medical care as well. Totally. So a couple a couple things at the top of this too. So one of the most frustrating parts of writing a book about yellow fever in a slave society like New Orleans is that you have, I mean, I have thousands, tens of thousands of accounts of white people who face yellow fever and describe their experiences. Um, in their sickness, um, what their acclimation was able to do for them afterwards, how much money they paid to doctors, how it changed their perception of God or their perception of the government, etc. Um, you have literally tens of thousands of sources of these firsthand narratives. You probably have, I probably have maybe 10 firsthand accounts from enslaved people that are unvarnished by white voices that describe um, an enslaved person's experience of what it was like to live amid epidemics, but also facing this disease. 10, even, 10 even might be generous. I'm, you know, we're talking, you know, I can count them on my hand of the number of firsthand accounts, um, which is, you know, this is for somebody who wants to sort of paint an accurate picture of life in New Orleans, um, amid yellow fever, this is a major impediment to that. And what's really striking, what's absolutely, you know, basically this is 
a rule is that when you have white men who are describing their manly brushes with this disease and how virtuous they are, in the way that they tell the story afterwards, it was because, you know, they fell sick and they chose not to die. They chose um, survival and, you know, they, using their masculine fortitude, they were able to propel themselves into greatness. And a white doctor might make an appearance in that narrative, maybe. Almost almost never um, did the person who actually was always in the room make an appearance. And that is black women. Um, these are free black women or enslaved women, some of whom had to be there, some of whom were there because they were paid to be there. But these women are never named, almost never named in any actual narrative. And their contributions, which were, you know, hefty contributions to this person's survival, were almost always written out of the story. So if you were an enslaved black woman um, during, you know, an epidemic, very often, if your uh, master fell sick, you therefore were put into this position of having to care for them and maybe their entire family. Um, and nursing during yellow fever epidemics was grueling, terrible work. Um, you were basically on call around the clock to change people's sheets, to feed them, to hold them down if they're having a delirious fit. Um, you are, you know, swaddling them. You're, it, it, this is very physical, extremely exhausting labor. Not only that, you might fall sick yourself, um, too, which, you know, introduces a whole other complex layer of um, problems into this dynamic. And you might have to work through your sickness if you possibly can. And so, you know, this is this is um, grueling work that is seldom paid. Um, it, that's, you know, especially if you were enslaved, it's not paid work. Um, you do see, actually, though, a fair number of free Black women um, in New Orleans who are paid actually quite handsomely. Um, for their services during epidemics. Um, sometimes, you know, $5 a day, $10 a day. These are large numbers, considering especially, remember that, you know, skilled white workers, um, men, that is, would make, you know, $1 or $2 a day. This is a lot of money, potentially. And so you see, and they actually, um, Black women were often preferred um, by people who were suffering from yellow fever in New Orleans because they were considered to be actual experts on yellow fever, unlike doctors who many people saw as basically expensive quacks um, who didn't really know what they were doing and were constantly basically seeking to monetize the wisdom and knowledge of black women um, and use their sort of care and their expertise of yellow fever for their professional advantage. And so you see this sort of huge class of women, black women, white women too, um, you know, there, you know, this is nursing was very much women's work. Um, and that's not just true for yellow fever epidemics um, but for almost all diseases. But you see during epidemics, Black women working around the clock, um, and they are the primary caretakers of the vast majority of people um, in and around New Orleans at this time. And you see um, also, in addition to the kind of traditional um, sort of fountain, uh, you see, in addition to the sort of traditional medical professions, that is doctors and nurses, um, who, you know, and these doctors apparently have been trained in you know, and had been licensed, um, you also see various sort of heterodox or sort of unofficial or perhaps unconventional um, first responders to yellow fever. So you see this, a large number of so-called steam doctors or steamers who um, were employed during epidemics in New Orleans and around the country, in fact, too. And steamers, these are generally um, people who are, you know, they're decidedly not doctors, 
um, with no medical training, but they employed homeopathic remedies. And these people were generally cheaper than doctors and were actually often more popular with people than doctors because um, they didn't, they, you know, some of their, their remedies, they might not actually work, but they were certainly gentler um, than mercury. Um, so they would, you know, steam doctors accused official doctors of basically poisoning um, their patients. They weren't wrong about that. Um, and these steam doctors would essentially sort of employ steam baths, seeing to make people better. But then you also have this whole class of people like Marie Laveau um, and um, other sort of quote unquote sorceresses or um, seers. These are you know women and men, but seers, um, many of whom were black, many of whom had Haitian roots, um, people who had spent time in the Caribbean, um, and practices sort of heterodox religion, and people would um, go to these women seeking remedies, um, not just sort of medicinal remedies, but also spiritual ones, um, seeking for them to say prayers um, on their behalf, or else, um, you know, sort of you know, use use uh, supernatural powers to heal them. And so this sort of whole again industry really of people who practice this kind of heterodox. Um, approach to curing yellow fever came to proliferate in New Orleans. Um, and so you see this, you know, you, you see, so you have this sort of traditional kind of official medical profession, but then, you know, outside of that, this entire world of healers and um, sort of medical, uh, sort of healers really um, come about too. And they're, you know, just as popular, if not more popular, in fact, with the vast majority of um, residents, especially enslaved people who could not afford expensive medicines or doctors if they became sick. Um, so they would employ steam doctors or else um, they would, you know, seek out people who had homeopathic remedies or herbal remedies um, to um, yellow fever. Uh, I was really struck by the ways that police and policing show up in the book. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about what the role of the police uh, were in the way that the city handled yellow fever. Um, and also if you could talk about peccadillos. Sure. A peccadillo is one of my favorite words, actually. It's um, So a peccadillo in the 19th century or in the antebellum period, um, a peccadillo um, was sort of this phrase that was popularly used at the time to describe a crime that wasn't really a crime. So we're talking like jaywalking or... Like, you know, any, you know, we have, we, you know, we think about them all the time. We you know we have them today too, sort of like jaywalking or like, you know, littering or something. So, something that's like, it's, it's something small, um, but something also crucially too, that could be seized upon to get you in trouble. Um, either that you would face a fine or else incarceration or some kind of, um, some kind of sort of brushing with the police or arrest. So the police, um, the police forces back then were not quite the same as they are today. Um, by the 1840s, the vast majority of police officers in New Orleans were Irish born. Um, and they were not necessarily, um, you know, sort of trusted individuals who were, you know, who were seen to be protecting the public's good. Um, very often they were sort of paid by individuals actually um, to solve a crime on their behalf. And they were, um, you were forced to post, if you were a police officer, you would be, you would post a bond to ensure your good behavior. Um, so that's a lot of, actually, this is like, this is, it should be a symbol of what the city sort of considers you to be, which is that you're not really like a sort of quote unquote peace officer or trying to uphold the public good. You're seen kind of more as this rogue agent. 
And police officers were um, sort of the front line of this system by which politicians and judges and elected officials um, came to think about control and funding the city. So as I said earlier, um, this is this is a city and actually a region, this is the South in general, that is very anti-tax. Um, they do not believe in taxing people. Um, I mean, but I mean, when I mean people, I mean, especially enslavers um, at high rates. Um, so certain you know, certain things in the South are taxed at incredibly low rates. That's enslaved people, especially. Um, and it shows you the kind of priorities of the society. So who's making the rules? So actually, New Orleans um, is not in a financially very good position um, for most decades of the 19th century. Um, it's the, you know, it's not able to borrow money at the same rates of, as other cities because the risk is very high here. Um, so they're always looking for ways to a not tax citizens, um, white citizens, um, rich white citizens, but also ways to line their coffers. And so they do this essentially, you know, they see, they look at their population and they see one thing, one asset um, that New Orleans has that no other city has to the same extent, no other American city has. And that is a large population of unacclimated people who cannot vote essentially at this point. So these are people who are new to New Orleans and they are vulnerable to yellow fever. And many of these people, of course, will die. Um, in the near future. And they come to see sort of their, it is their MO, um, that they want to squeeze as much out of these people, um, these these unaccommodated people, as they possibly can, either before they become enfranchised citizens and sort of ascend into the accommodated classes, or else they die. Um, so all sorts of things in New Orleans were criminalized that, you know, or sort of incredibly strange things. And so in, in this is this is the case in many 19th century news, newspapers, in fact, um, then, but also this is still true today, that many newspapers will have a kind of like police blotter where they'll publish what people were arrested for and the outcome of that. And so you see this, you know, like constant um, sort of narrative of people getting arrested for being vagrants, um, for being homeless, um, for not having a place of abode, for being too loud and brawling on the streets, um, for being too loud and walking on the streets, for, you know, basically for anything, any of these these little peccadillos. Um, And police officers and recorders and judges, they will brag about how many of these essentially non-crimes they um, arrest for, and then how much money and fines that they are able to extract from this group of people who are otherwise vulnerable. And this is, by the way, is especially true of prostituted women um, who, and you know, it's actually like, it's, it's a kind of an amazing thing actually too. And it's quite difficult to trace individual women through the record, but many, many prostituted women um, in this time period, in the early 19th century, they, um, their stories are, you know, incredibly tragic. Most of them have newly arrived in New Orleans. Um, many of them had been married. Their husbands died from yellow fever. They're left, um, you know, with many kids, essentially destitute, um, with no help. Um, they are unemployed. They can't get a job. They have many, many mouths to feed. And so they turn to prostitution and um, their pimps are horrible. It's, you know, it's, it's this miserable life. And, you know, Officials know this. Um, they know this actively, but they are always seeking, especially during epidemic times, to basically squeeze this group, this class of people, as much as they can for all the money they can. And this is this is literally the, the, all this money sort of extracted through fines and fees. This 
is what's funding New Orleans in its operation. Even the sort of merest, the sort of most skeletal aspects of a city government that they actually have. This is the kind of this is where the funding is coming from, not from taxes, not from any kind of investment. Otherwise, it's from extracting as much money as possible from this most vulnerable class of people, the unacclimated, um, before they die. Um, thank you for that. <laughs> very, very grim, but I feel like good to know about. Right? My, my husband, his, my husband joked, he's like, you know, Catherine, for your next book, can you do like a history of champagne or something? <laughs> or like, you know, like history of chocolate, just something a little bit more uplifting than. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, speaking of feeling uplifted, <laughs> we could talk about the um, the epidemic of 1853, because this sort of, it seems like caught folks um, off guard because there was this feeling that like yellow fever was sort of over. Um, and then this this epidemic came and, and crushed um, everyone's dreams of that of that being the case. Um, yeah. Would you talk a little bit about, about 1853? So absolutely. So 1853 was known as the great epidemic. Um, and this was front page news. Um, this particular epidemic, this was front page news, not just in Louisiana or in the South, but across the country and even across the world. This was something that was reported on everywhere because it was such a staggering epidemic. 12,000 people died in the course of three summer months. That's over a tenth of the city's population, um, and also one-fifth of the Irish-born population. This is a huge number of people who died in this epidemic. And what's interesting about this is that for a variety of reasons, uh, New Orleans had not had an epi- uh, had a, had had it had not had an, a major epidemic in about five years. So the last epidemic um, was 1840. 7, 1849, um, it's sort of debatable, but basically there is, um, you know, we see during this period, we haven't, we, you know, we don't have any serious outbreak of yellow fever. Immigration is huge to New Orleans. So many, many people in the city in 1853, in May of 1853, the only, they, you know, they've never seen yellow fever firsthand. They're new to the city, um, they're immigrant, recent immigrants, and they only know about yellow fever as the sort of story, at the, you know, a story um, as a, you know, essential nightmare. But um, many people were actually very nervous about this kind of like sanguine apathy that had developed um, because they see the city's various puddles that have are stinking and emitting this green sort of mildew everywhere. They see the huge numbers of mosquitoes. They don't, again, they don't make the connection yet, but they see this like swarms of mosquitoes everywhere. Um, they see the city's filthiness um, and they're nervous about this. Um, they're very nervous about the sort of situation of the, of the city. And basically um, this epidemic happens very early, um, actually sort of incredibly early in the season. Um, so in very early May, um, a ship arrives on the levee um, the Camden Castle. Um, this has arrived from Jamaica, and on board, um, various people grow sick and die. This is again. So, the, generally speaking, the first sort of like official day that it was considered to be okay to declare an epidemic of yellow fever official. This was July first. So we're talking very early May. This is very early, and no doctor um, wanted to officially declare a case of yellow fever because they were scared to be wrong. And they were also scared to instill panic. And of course, this, you know, if people panicked and they started to flee the city because they're scared of disease, this would, of course, impact business. And so no doctor wanted to be the kind of like origin of this. And so they were always disincentivized from declaring any cases official until July 1st. 
But the problem with this is that actually things started to spiral very quickly. So in these very densely packed neighborhoods, um, the Irish Channel, in Narni, um, in Treme, in all these places that are sort of, you see housing just growing out from the original French Quarter. This is, you know, poor housing. This is densely packed. Um, a lot of people living in very cramped conditions. You see all of these people falling sick and officials really not wanting anything to do with this. And so newspapers basically never declare, for the entire epidemic of 1853, some newspapers never declare any cases present. They just like ignore it entirely. Um, this is true even as like their typesetters are dying, their editors are dying. It's like they just don't put it into writing. And so this epidemic spirals and it gets so much worse. The city council, they adjourn before appropriating any money for public health. Um, which and actually literally for three months, basically the city was without government entirely. Um, you know, they were sort of, the city council like told, a, you know, a small subcommittee to basically take over and they don't. Um, and all the city councilors, again, they flee to their country plantations and they're having a grand old time playing games and drinking as people are dying en masse. And so for, you know, three months, four months that summer, you know, huge numbers of people are dying. Hundreds of people are dying a day. Eventually, at the end of this epidemic, 12,000 people are dead. Um, and this is such a large epidemic, in fact, that this, this sort of old excuses no longer really worked. So, you know, politicians would say after a bad epidemic, generally, like, oh, that's unfortunate, you know, but there's nothing that we could have done. And you know who died anyways? It was Irishmen. We don't care about them. They were drunkards. You know, such is life. Who cares? Um, you know, it was immigrants. And immigrants caused the disease in the first place. It's their fault. And those sort of excuses don't quite work this time because people are angry. They say like, you know, this is, this is ridiculous. Like in, you know, and as you know, we would naturally feel the same way too. Um, but they sort of do this kind of performative thing where they start up committees and to investigate what happened and then come, you know, the harvest rolling around, come the reopening of business in December, come, you know, cotton factories getting, you know, cotton factories and sort of merchant houses getting up and running again, all of this is dropped. And then, the following summer, there's another very serious epidemic, 1854. Um, and, you know, they basically say the same thing, which is that, you know, we're not, yeah, too bad. Um, this is, you know, it's obviously not great that so many people died, but again, nobody asked them to come. You know, immigrants were the ones who caused it. You know, the poor people caused it and they were all probably drunks anyways. And so there's nothing that we could have done. And this sort of denialism persists throughout the 1850s. It probably would have persisted had the Civil War not happened. Yeah, it was difficult reading this part of the book because you keep thinking like, oh, maybe this is the one that's like going to make them reassess, right? And then it's like, oh, no, of course, they're just oh, doing mind. Oh, yeah, oh, never mind. Yeah, it's actually, it's actually going to get worse. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it was also this time in the 1850s, right, where whites are still touting this idea that Black people are naturally or even divinely sort of immune to yellow fever, but also saying that they're the cause of the virus. Can you talk about how that... Yeah. So, so very briefly here, this is, this is one of these, again, perplexing things in which um, it, it's this complicated kind of Gordian illogical knot um, in the way that white people talked about yellow fever and sort of explained it and justified it and racialized it therefore too. So as I said um, before, you have, you know, the sort of these competing images of black, of black people and yellow fever. So on the one hand, you have white people who say, you know, that there is that, all black people are naturally immune to yellow fever, no matter where they were born, whether it's West Africa or Kentucky. 
Then you have, on the other hand, white people who are very worried about the fact that black people obviously couldn't die from yellow fever and no self-respecting enslaver would purchase a not an unacclimated person. So in the slave market, in fact, in New Orleans, um, acclimated enslaved people sold for between 25 and 50% more. So that's, you know, this price differential should suggest to you how valuable this credential was, um, you know, at the time um, to enslavers who see basically this sort of branding of an accl- of, of you know this sort of declaration of, a, of an enslaved person's um, acclamation as a guarantee of their as sort of a it, it makes their capital safer it's a guarantee of their capital so you have this and this and this and then you also have this kind of like popular presentation of what yellow fever is that develops at this time where very serious epidemics of yellow fever were often called congo fever or african fever and you have planters who sort of are when they're musing about you know the origins of this disease um they think, you know, they sort of, they, again, they don't know that the mosquito is the vector, but they suggest that there is some kind of West African origin or some kind of Caribbean origin. And this they link to and attribute to Black people somehow, um, or else to slavery. And in fact, I should say at this time, in fact, some abolitionists in the North, um, mostly in the North, they actually say that yellow fever was divine punishment for the sin of slavery, um, that this is that, you know, and you actually see, you see quite a few um, abolitionists saying this, that, you know, God was essentially punishing the South um, with these epidemics because slavery was immoral and wrong. Um, you don't see enslavers in the South saying that, of course, but some people do, you know, they, they don't moralize in this way, but they do essentially, they see, um, fundamentally, they, they sort of see and personify yellow fever as a black person. So in operas or sketches and plays at the time, yellow fever, if, when it was personified, was always played by some kind of either enslaved or free black person who was preying upon people um, at the docks or on the levee, for example. And so this connection um, in people's minds between black people and yellow fever is really complicated. So on the one hand, of course, black people are said to be you know, widely held to be immune. But on the other hand, they're also somehow responsible for this virus. Um, they're you know, the sort of progenitors of it. And actually, you know, this sort of there's like this incredibly complex tapestry that's going on here that I think actually sort of translates quite well to COVID-19 when, especially early on in the epidemic, many people both saw, you know, Asian Americans as because of this disease, there were huge numbers of racist crimes against Asian Americans for causing COVID-19, but also that there was this kind of narrative also too that Asian Americans were more vulnerable um, to COVID. Um, and you know, this was, you know, this sort of, again, complicated Gordian knot of logics that people who are scared um, concoct to, make sense of the world around them in a way that benefits them. So they sort of racialize it in a, because not only does it make sort of sense to them logically, but it also financially and socially benefits them to racialize it in such a manner. So then what happens once um, 1861 rolls around and we've got, you know, Louisiana seceded and then the following year, the Union Army is occupying um, can we talk about just like, yeah, what that occupation looked like in terms of how it impacted the way that yellow fever maybe spread or how the city responded to it? Yeah. So this is, you know, yellow fever, the civil war edition and now too. So in 18, so yellow fever, so excuse me, back up. New Orleans, um, is one of the biggest cities in the Confederacy. Um, and so when New Orleans, um, seceded along with Louisiana, obviously, you know, Confederate, 
officials and politicians were delighted because this meant at least that they would sort of still secure the Mississippi River, but also the cotton market. And cotton was, you know, sort of the Jefferson Davis um, and Alexander Stevens and all the politicians, they always saw the power of the Confederacy as dependent upon cotton because cotton gave them leverage on the world stage. Um, They could potentially, you know, seek recognition from the British or the French or the Russians because they controlled, um, because cotton was so valuable to them too. But New Orleans um, actually falls pretty early on in the war um, to Union control. So it's taken back in 1861. I think something like 300 people died in the battle to recapture New Orleans. Um, It was not a huge battle. Very little structural damage was done to the city itself. And so Benjamin Butler, um, who is this kind of like egocentric and like everyone at the time, he, you know, he was kind of a jerk, known to be kind of a jerk, but a very powerful one um, and sort of steadfast one too. He becomes the commanding officer in New Orleans. And he, um, that spring of 1862, he gets nervous actually, because he thinks, okay, um, we have all of these unacclimated Northern boys here, all these soldiers who've never seen yellow fever before. They're new to the South. What's going to happen come June? Um, and he was worried about this uh, very much so. So um, he takes a tour of the city um, with the city officials who are still there. He's he writes about this actually. He's like this, these people are crazy. Um, you know, there's a literally a cow bobbing in the canal next to the city to the Cabildo, which is the city council's seat. There's a cow bobbing over there, and, and nobody blinks an eye. And everyone says like, oh, that's just normal. Like that's that's just how New Orleans is. And so he fires all these people and he gets to work on sanitizing the city. Um, He implements a very strict quarantine and, you know, he does all these reforms and actually he's very successful because during the entire course of the war up to 1865, during the union occupation, there is not, there is not one single, um, single case of yellow fever that's reported to union authorities. There actually were some cases um, that we know about from censored letters. um, But this is not official. This is not officially promulgated. So these reforms did work. And by the way, the fact that New Orleans had no deaths from yellow fever during the war years, even as so many hundreds of thousands of people were pouring through the port, this showed basically that like basic public health things like quarantines could and did work actually. And like New Orleans wasn't that special. It just was cheap and fatalistic. So it showed this, but then after the war, basically all of the people who had been in charge of New Orleans before the war came back to power and they went back to their old ways, um, even in this new sort of political economy of emancipation. And you see 1866, 1867, once again, they're epidemics. And so, you know, and all of these sort of truths about yellow fever during the war are conveniently forgotten. Um, And they're associated with this sort of quote unquote tyranny of Benjamin Butler. And so even residents, you know, they, they have very short memories um, these Southerners, they say like, oh, actually, this didn't work so much. And that's just, you know, it's just the tyranny and overbearing nature of Benjamin Butler. But the sort of myths about yellow fever um, that had existed, the sort of ideology of yellow fever that existed before, before the war, it no longer worked um, in quite the same way after slavery was abolished. So before the war, of course, we have, you know, Louisiana and New Orleans is this major hub of American slavery and the domestic slave trade. After the war um, and after the passage of the 13th Amendment, um, slavery is abolished. Um, and so what does it mean for a society? You know, how can the white elites are thinking, like, how can we sort of reimagine yellow fever to fit this new political economy and this new social order? 
And so you see, it's actually, it's like, it's so, it's just, it's like so weird. You see these people who 10 years before um, or five years before were saying that all black people were naturally made yellow fever. They're now saying, no, no, no. It wasn't black skin or race that made a person, a black person immune to yellow fever. Actually, it was slave status. So slave status was the prophylactic against yellow fever. And now, um, you know, emancipation is cruel. It's inhuman. It's all of these things because now, you know, freed of the care of white people, the benevolent care of white people, I always say it like this too, this benevolent care of white people, we're going to see black people die in droves because they're unable to take care of themselves. And this protection, this sort of mystical protection of slavery is no longer going to protect them from yellow fever. And, you know, we do see a variety of epidemics across the American South after the war that, you know, sweep through um, plantations, but also contraband camps and cities that do kill a huge number of um, African-American free people. Um, It's one of the huge tragedies of this war, in fact, that many people's first experiences of freedom um, were sickness and death. So we're talking mostly smallpox, but also cholera and yellow fever as well. Um, but you see this this myth take off at the same time. It just it's crazy how quickly um, the expedience that you know sort of that it's 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 sort of miraculous to see how quickly you see these you know white enslavers now planters um, shift their narrative um, to match the new political order that they want. So when does immunocapitalism then finally sort of end in New Orleans? So it ends after the Civil War, but quite a, it, it still it hangs on for some time. So immunocapitalism required a few things to sort of persist, um, to keep going. So the first was that it, it required um, you know, this deadly disease that kills a lot of people, but also bestows immunity. It also required a large number, it, it required mass immigration. Um, so people needed to come in and to replace the dead. Um, and that needed to, and this happened for, you know, to more and more and more, over every decade of the antebellum years, though by the 1850s, you can see some of this immigration start to kind of reorient away from the South, more towards the Middle West. So Arkansas and perhaps Texas um, and Kansas and even to California. You can see those trends starting then. So you need you need um, this disease. You need a large population. Um, you need, you know, basically refueled by immigration. You need a commodity like um, cotton, you need basically to ensure New Orleans dominance um, so that people will want to keep coming here and so that it's sort of economic ascendancy is permanent. And then you also need this fixed labor force. You need enslaved people, um, or this is in their model, you need this fixed enslaved, this fixed um, labor force. And so after the war, all of these sort of processes end. So of course, emancipation mean, means that there's no more slavery. And in fact, black people, you know, the sort of black population of New Orleans does increase. Um, it's a place where Many black people um, either fleeing terrorism um, of the KKK or other white supremacist organizations um, in the countryside, they'll come to New Orleans trying to sort of seek safety or else to reunite with family who've been torn apart by the domestic slave trade or else for economic opportunity, they'll come to New Orleans. So you see the black population of New Orleans increase, but also an exodus of black people from Louisiana and the South more generally. Um, you know, you see this during the 17, excuse me, 1870s, 1860s and 1870s. So no more slavery. Um, also, immigration basically sh- shuts down precipitously. Um, people are no longer coming to New Orleans um, in the same numbers that they had been before the war. People are increasingly heading further west. They're seeking to buy farmland again in Arkansas um, or else in you know Minnesota or you know 
other places that are free of disease where there's more economic opportunity. And after the war, you know, the South, you know, this economic reality of the South was um, not great um, at best and required, you know, really didn't regain its steam until after the, you know, until the turn of the 20th century. So um, you still, of course, have yellow fever, but then you also have this um, enormous sort of positions diminishing relative to others within the domestic cotton trade. And so this is because for the most part, New Orleans did not invest in railways um, and nor did Louisiana. So it has far fewer railways than did other Southern states. So increasingly, in fact, planters are no longer taking their goods, their, their cotton, then shipping it, you know, over bayous or smaller rivers to the Mississippi river um, and then shipping their cotton on steamboats down the Mississippi to New Orleans. Increasingly, they're putting this cotton onto rail cars, um, which is being shipped to Atlanta or Chicago or elsewhere, much, more, much, much, much faster. So New Orleans is losing its position sort of relative to others um, in, um, in the global, in the sort of domestic and global cotton trade. And, you know, some, you know, it's, it's fascinating because the people sort of who are at the top of New Orleans, the sort of cl- the class and economic um, oh, social, economic and class life, they they should have seen these processes happening and they just didn't. They were sort of uncreative. And that's probably because to a certain extent, yellow fever sort of narrowed their imaginations. They just didn't see the writing on the wall. And people, so in 18, the sort of the last major epidemic of yellow fever in New Orleans happens in 1879, just after reconstruction has finished. And, you know, 15,000 people, I think 25,000 people across the Mississippi Valley all the way up to Memphis die from yellow fever. And these cities are, they blame New Orleans. They say like, this is ridiculous. Like no longer should you guys, because you are resistant to quarantines, you should not be dictating our health reality. So we're going to basically like stop dealing with you. We're going to start dealing with other places, especially like Atlanta or Columbia, South Carolina, or other places that have rebuilt significantly after the war um, and don't have this diseased problem. And so, you know, the last epidemic of yellow fever happens in 1905. Um, you know, there were epidemics after the 1870s, but they sort of diminish um, over time. And that's probably because they're just, you know, fewer, there's less fuel actually for the disease because so few people are coming into the port. And the last epidemic happens in 1905, 500 people die. Um, and thereafter, sort of yellow fever becomes the stuff of memories and immunocapitalism has collapsed. But right up into that point, right up into that point, you see people, you know, still in newspapers and in job applications and things like this, touting their acclimation status, saying, you know, hire me because I'm acclimated. Um, it's still a worthwhile credential, you know, up until the 20th century, um, even even if its social and economic value has diminished somewhat um, as epidemics sort of decrease toward the end of the 19th century. Wow, that's really wild. <laughs> um, so... I assume that you were writing or researching or some combination, you know, of this book um, when COVID started and hit the U.S. And I'm kind of wondering, like, what was that like to be writing a a book about, yeah, this uh, these ways of epidemic disease while we were dealing with our own epidemic? Well, I mean, like to use a technical phrase, it sucked. Um, it was. I mean, I I really did. I had not anticipated this, and it was, you know, during the sort of it, it, so I finished the first draft of my book before the pandemic struck, and I've been working on this for some time. But you know, come April of 2020, I was teaching a ton on you know all this is happening in Zoom. My students were like miserable. We're all miserable. We're all scared. We're all watching this disease unfurl, and we're living in you know it's we're living in this kind of 
at, at, you know, especially back then, this is you know long before the vaccine came into effect, and we really didn't know all that much. Um, and the sort of stories that we would hear were cases increasing of you know refrigerator trucks outside of you know hospitals in New York City of you know these it, it just it was it, you know we were all I think we actually all of us have a little bit like shut it out of our memories of how sort of both terrifying and boring it was at the same time that's that's kind of like life and watching it but so I used to think you know I was you know sort of writing about yellow fever by day teaching about the civil war you know in the afternoon and then at night I would be worried about COVID and it was just this like it was a little bit too much art imitated life to a kind of scary degree but in retrospect now especially I'm I'm I don't know if it's I don't know if I can say I feel privileged because I feel like it, it, that's maybe not the right word but I feel really lucky in some capacities because there's something, you know, for a historian, um, we never really get to see our ideas in action. And I feel like this actually gave me the ability to not sympathize with, but empathize with the people I write about in my book a little bit more. You know, a lot of them, by the way, are, you know, enslavers and terrible people, but it's a scary thing to live through a disease um, that you don't know anything about. Um, and I think that it made me sort of, it, it gave me a sort of a little bit of, a little bit more context as to what their lives must have been like, even just, I'm talking a teaspoon of it. And of course, yellow fever was much, much deadlier than was COVID, than is COVID. Um, and, you know, more terrifying um, in so many ways. But it gave, it, again, just this little teaspoon of perspective that I think, in retrospect, I'm really glad for. Um, yeah. It was kind of, it was interesting for me to read this because when I was COVID hit the second semester of my first year of grad school and we were in the middle for one of my seminars. Oh, no. <laughs> um, we were we were in the middle of reading Journal of a Plague Year, and so yeah, <laughs> wonderful timing. And so I remember reading that and thinking like, oh my god, it must have sucked back then because like they didn't know what was going on at all. And then COVID hits and it's like oh, we actually like don't know as much as I would like to think we know either. Um, or maybe are not motivated by the things I would like us to be motivated by all the time in terms of responding um, to disease. And so, yeah, reading, which I had never, I obviously had heard of yellow fever. I had no idea that this was all happening in New Orleans, so, but it was just so fascinating um, to, yeah, to still be in this, you know, ongoing, ongoing pandemic, but to be reading about this and it's like, oh yeah, people are people. <laughs> we've, we've been people for a long time and we're people still are, people. <laughs> people are people and, you know, we're all scared. And, you know, and I, it's interesting because I feel like right at the beginning, people were, you know, I, and this is like, again, like in March and April of 2020, you know, April, May, like, I, I knew, I feel like I knew right off the bat that this was going to be politicized. And it's like, you know, disease facts don't really matter. Like we use disease to craft into a narrative about who we are and what we want. And so when, you know, I, I always think about, there's that famous picture of Donald Trump coming back from the VA hospital, Walter Reed Hospital in New, in um, Washington, D.C. And he's standing on the portico of the White House and he's taking off his mask. And by the way, he's still contagious at this time. You know, we also now know that he was like deadly sick with this disease. And, you know, he, he you know, he was though, you know, in taking off his mask, he was sort of promulgating that he was this manly patriot that he had, you know, that we had to all fall sick to express our, you know, sort of fealty to the economy and to like, you know, this is like straight out of the antebellum playbook in this way. Um, I always think of that picture as a caption, the, the 21st century's first immunocapitalist, Donald Trump, um, who's like, you know, thinking in this way. Um, but it's all, it just, it's like, 
you know, I, I and like one more thing on this, like I remember somebody asking me, like, so when will this pandemic end? And like, you know, of course I didn't know. Like, and I, I, I said like the smartest thing I've ever said probably in my entire life, though, which was like, you know, it'll be over when we say it's over. And I think that that's like, I wish I had like written that down and published it somewhere because like, gosh, when I put on a pillow, like that was remarkably prescient for like right now, which is that, you know, I would just in, in an airport and like, no, not a single person is wearing a mask, even though cases are up. And, you know, it, we just always, this was going to be the case that we, we will learn to grow comfortable with a certain amount of infection and a certain amount of death and a certain amount of sickness and move on with our lives. And that's what happens. Um, and, you know, I wish it wasn't the case, but here we are. Yeah. Maybe I should say instead of people are people, capitalism is capitalism. And <laughs> yeah. supposed to is I, 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 I think people are people is actually like, <laughs> I, I got the message and I agree yeah, with it. Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> well, to move us on to our last question, um, are you working on anything now that you'd like to tell us about and sort of where can people find your work and find you? I don't know if you have a social media presence, but if you do and you'd like to advertise it, feel free. Sure. I hate Twitter, but I have Twitter. Um, so it's at Kat Oliverius. Um, and I am working on a variety of new projects. Um, probably the, the one that I'm most jazzed about right now. And I, you know, I don't really, I, I don't really consider myself to be a disease historian. I'm, I consider myself to be a social historian actually. And, you know, and the study of disease is kind of almost incidental to understanding how societies, um, and cultures adapt, um, in facing great crisis. Having said that, um, and again, my husband's going to just totally kill me when I say this, um, because he was, he got a little, he got a little sick of listening to disgusting yellow fever symptoms over dinner too many times. Um, but I think I'm going to write my next book about the civil war, um, and shame and all of the sort of basically this Republic of suffering, you know, dot, dot, dot in silence. Um, so all the things that civil war soldiers brought home with them that they didn't talk about. And a huge component of that is syphilis. Um, the number of the numbers of infections of syphilis and deaths from syphilis during the civil war was huge. And all of these boys, if they survived the war, um, you know, they slept with prostitutes during the war or each other. Um, you know, they want to have sex for the first time or maybe the last time they're not thinking, um, in terms of long-term risk. Um, syphilis is hugely contagious. Um, they survive the war, they go home, they give it to their girlfriends, to their wives, they never talk about it. And, you know, so their wife suffers and maybe dies, maybe they die, their kids um, are born, you know, stillborn or deformed. It's this horribly destructive disease. And I'm sort of interested in how this shame and the sort of not talking about certain things and how these stories of shame get passed down, um, either physically, epidemiologically, or else um, in stories. So another really uplifting topic. Um, so history of chocolate will be sometime after that, perhaps. <laughs> well, I look forward to reading your history of chocolate after this, this next project. Sounds really fascinating. Yeah. Actually, I think history of chocolate is probably a pretty dark history. Maybe we can do like history of Cadbury's or something. I don't know. Um, never mind. Uh, well, thank you so much. I um, obviously like this book is sort of infuriating to read at times, but it's also like such a pleasure to read and so fascinating. You're really a tremendous writer like I was very entertained while I was reading which I think is hard to do when you're reading a history that is really grim but you know all of these individual stories the way you tell them they are like really captivating um really interesting um and honestly a lot of what you you know I I, 
I, I look at like fatness in American literature. So I'm just like reading books because I just think they're interesting for this uh, channel. But I always find a lot of things that actually like help me think about my own project and your book was no exception. So I really appreciate the way that, um, yeah, thinking about like the racialization of disease, especially is like really very fascinating, obviously awful, but very important for my work. Um, so thank you. And thank you for making time for me today. I'm, I'm delighted. And I, you know, I, hopefully we can talk about something, you know, like daisies and roses next time. Um, you know, hopefully we'll both be in that position soon, but I'm, it was lovely to talk to you today. I really appreciate it. Thank you.